Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. Here we want to talk about health and actions we can take to be proactive about our health. We've talked about many toxins and challenges to our health, such as glyphosate, GMO, vaccines, aspartame, etc. Today we're going to touch on a topic that's quite controversial. It's going to touch upon vaccines. And this is kind of controversial because one person I know at a renowned university lost that person's standing after a one-sentence comment on Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book. Also interesting in the proponents for vaccines, they apparently their scientific studies rely on one study that was inconclusive on the effects of vaccines, whether it affected certain diseases such as autism. Another thing in this area I find rather interesting is, I might, I might be wrong on this, so correct me if I am, but that uh, vaccine makers who are, don't have any liability and they transferred that to the U.S. government through the vaccine courts. So when something goes wrong, and I think they just had a $100 million judgment, um, something goes wrong, the U.S. taxpayers pay for it. So there's something that seems a little funny. So... We want to look at this a little further, vaccines, autoimmunity, and how it can affect our health. So today we have Thomas Cohen, who's a physician, and he's got a very interesting theory where he looks at that, you know, the normal healing processes of the body, we don't want to interfere with those because that could, you know, the body has certain mechanisms that it does so we can stay well or get well, and we don't want to interfere with it. So Dr. Thomas Cohen has studied and written about so many subjects in medicine, including nutrition, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. He's the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing and co-author with Sally Fallon of the Nourishing Tradition Book of Baby and Child Care. He has served as the vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophic Medicine and is a founding board member of the Western A. Price Foundation. They're a very good group. I recommend uh, getting involved with them any time you have the chance. He also writes the Ask the Doctor column in Wise Traditions, which is connected with uh, Western Price Foundation, and that's in Food and Farming and the Healthy Arts. It's in the Western Price Quarterly Magazine. He's lectured throughout the United States and Canada, and I'm very glad that he's here today. Um, So welcome, Dr. Cohen. Hi there, and actually it's Cowan, not Cohen. I'm sorry, Dr. Uh, I'll try not to do that again, but who knows. That's okay. Okay. It's a common mistake. Uh, okay, so um, you wrote a book, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, which I enjoy. So what got you interested in this topic? Uh, what got me interested in the topic? Well, uh, I started in medicine in about 1984, and at that time <clears throat> I was 
learning anthroposophical medicine, um, which is a form of medicine that's fairly widely practiced in Europe and not much in the United States, but it's a kind of uh, natural healing techniques and ways of thinking more than techniques, I guess, developed by Rudolf Steiner in the early part of this century, uh, last century. And it was a big part of, of anthroposophical medical training and theory to understand the important role of childhood diseases in the development of a healthy human being. And, of course, that gets you directly into the whole question of vaccines. Uh, it wasn't such an issue for me in the beginning because I was in a small rural uh, community in, in uh, New Hampshire, and I was associated with the Waldorf School and with a biodynamic farm. And, you know, I was young and had three small children myself, and most of my patients were also young families with small children. And essentially nobody vaccinated anybody, so I never thought about it much. Um, uh, over the years, things have gotten different, and somehow uh, I, I have seen as the vaccine schedule has grown, uh, more and more people are having issues with them. It's more and more of a topic in the general culture. And from my point of view, uh, I wasn't seeing anybody, well, I don't know about anybody, but very many people talking about the bigger picture. And so I, I guess what got me interested in this was I thought there was a bigger picture uh, behind the vaccine story, which is what I wrote about the changing nature of childhood disease. In some ways, the vaccine story is only a small part of that, but that the real issue that we need to understand is, is how and why children get sick and what we should or shouldn't do about it, and the role of that in the development of a healthy human being, including a healthy adult. And that's not something that there's no consciousness, there's no awareness of this in conventional medicine. And so that's essentially what I thought I could offer. What's quite interesting to me is that the, for adults and children, uh, chronic diseases have escalated. For example, one in two and a half children have an allergy. One in six, correct me if I'm wrong, one in six have a developmental disability. One in 11 has asthma. One in 13 have severe food allergies, and one in 36 has autism. I mean, and we know chronic diseases has increased for adults as well. So why do you think children have such an increasing rate of diseases? Well, I mean, that was uh, essentially the whole thesis of my book, so I'm happy to launch into that if you would like. I would Uh, love it. So, so basically the story goes, at least the story that I originally learned in, in anthroposophical medicine and that have developed on my own, is we essentially are born with two different immune systems. People like to say my immune system isn't functioning well, and I often think I should ask them, which immune system are you talking about? Uh, but the, the, the reality is we have two. And if you take an example of something like chickenpox, uh, what, what happens is if we are exposed to a, a viral infection, or it could even be a toxin of some sort, 
um, some sort of exogenous influence, that uh, chickenpox virus will get in and infect thousands and maybe even millions of cells, particularly along the respiratory tract. And so you have end up with a situation of many, many cells that are infected with this virus, and the body doesn't want that. So it calls on the cell-mediated immunity, which is basically centered around the white blood cells, and they go in and uh, essentially digest and break down these cells and then cause them to be excreted through the various excretory channels of the body. And this, of course, includes mucus, it includes skin, it includes urine, it includes bowels. So that first seven to ten days approximately that we're sick with chickenpox or a child is sick with chickenpox, it's the cell-mediated immune system which is basically ridding the body of these virally infected cells. So the important point to to note here is that that which we call being sick, meaning fever, rash, mucus, cough, flu-like symptoms, all those uh, symptoms that we associate with being sick, that is actually a manifestation of the cell-mediated immune system activity. It's not because of the virus or the toxin, although the virus or the toxin sets the cell-mediated immune system in motion, but the actual symptoms come from the cell-mediated immune system. Now, one might ask, how do I know that? And the answer is, because you can infect somebody with a virus or a toxin and then give a medicine like prednisone to stop their cell-mediated reactivity, and they won't be sick, not in the usual way we mean somebody's sick. They could even die of the infection or they could die of the toxic exposure. But the, this elimination reaction, which we call being sick, that won't happen. And on the other hand, you can create a cell-mediated response in somebody, no virus or toxin needed, just by stimulating the white blood cells. So again, the important point is that which we call sick is our own cell-mediated immune system reaction to whatever exogenous influence was brought to bear. Now, the second part of our immune system happens because we don't want this to happen over and over again. If we didn't have a second part called the humoral immune system or the antibody-based immune system, then we would, as soon as we get better from the chickenpox virus, which takes usually 7 to 10 days, we would just get the chickenpox virus over and over and over again, and that would be a miserable life. So we don't want that to happen, so we have a memory arm of our immune system. Again, it's called the humoral or antibody-based immune system. And the function of this is to tag or to code uh, for one of the proteins, the unique proteins of the chickenpox chicken pox virus capsule, and so the body makes uh, antibodies against that particular antigen or protein of the chickenpox virus. So if the person ever encounters that particular virus again, 
then they eliminate it with the antibodies without any cell-mediated reaction having to take place. Now, the difference between the antibody or humoral reaction and the cell-mediated reaction is the antibody reaction has no symptoms, which is very convenient because that means we've eliminated the virus. We don't need to be sick over and over again from the same thing, which would, you know, that would be like a game changer for our life. And when those two systems work together, in other words, you get exposed to the chickenpox virus, you make a cell-mediated reaction to clear the virus and the infected cells, you make antibodies to remember what happens, then you never get sick again from that same virus. And that system is incredibly foolproof and it's to the point where it's extremely rare for somebody to get chicken pox twice in their life or measles or mumps or any of the other viral illnesses because when you have both systems working together you're immune from life for life so that's, that's basically the, the very quick, simple version of how our immune system works. And up until the, essentially the advent of the vaccine era, every single immune response included both of those uh, arms of the immune system. The whole theory of, the, of a vaccination was we can bypass the cell-mediated part because after all, that's the part that's making us sick. And if we get too sick, we might die or have a bad outcome. So we don't want that part. We're just going to give something to stimulate antibodies mimicking the second part. And that will make people immune from life without having to go through the misery of getting sick in the first place. That was the theory of the vaccine. And I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to remember that when we, this started, when the vaccine era was introduced and vaccines were being started in this country, we were specifically told that, for instance, you would get a measles shot and you would be immune for life from measles without having to go through the cell-mediated sick part. And we were told that that immunity from a vaccine against measles was identical to immunity from natural measles. The problem, of course, was very quickly both of those, uh, I would call them myths, were debunked. The, the, the second myth, myth, that natural immunity is the same as vaccine-induced immunity, was debunked very quickly with measles with the situation of when children who have an illness called the nephrotic syndrome, which is a kidney disease that some children get, it's an autoimmune disease, uh, which I think I'll talk about in a minute how that comes about. Uh, when they get natural measles, there's a high percentage of cases where that when they're done getting measles, the nephrotic syndrome goes away. In other words, they're cured of nephrotic syndrome by having measles. So, of course, people thought, well, we'll give them the measles vaccine with if they have nephrotic syndrome, and that will cure them, and it did nothing for them. 
So that was a quick lesson in how we learned that vaccine immunity is not the same as natural immunity. The second lesson came when we discovered that vaccine immunity at best lasts maybe 10 to 12 years of having antibodies. To back up for a minute, the purpose of the vaccine is to create antibodies, like I said, without creating, uh, having to go through a cell-mediated reaction. Uh, the problem, the second problem or the first myth was these antibodies, if you don't go through the cell-mediated reaction, they typically only last 10 to 12 years with the initial vaccine and somewhere between two and five years with each subsequent booster. So we found out that unbeknownst to the theory and, uh, and that children or people in their teenage years or college years were starting to get measles again, which was very surprising because they were vaccinated at 18 months, supposedly for life. And the proof of this is very simple. That's why we give boosters for all vaccinatable diseases. Um, so it's easy to prove that everybody knows that the vaccine immunity wears off. In other words, the antibodies wear off. Now, the whole point of my book was if you go and set out on a course of stimulating the antibody arm of the immune system over and over and over again, and at the same time, you have a full, full frontal assault on the cell-mediated immune system, meaning you prevent it happening from the first place by vaccinating, and every time somebody does get a fever or a rash, you suppress it with antipyretic drugs like aspirin and Tylenol or Advil or Motrin. You give uh, prednisone or something else to suppress the rash. You give cough medicines to suppress the cough. So essentially, modern pediatrics is a kind of an attack on the cell-mediated immune system and through the vaccines, a boosting of the humoral immune system so the question is, what are the consequences of that? Now, I would only point out, and then I'll stop for a minute and see if you have any questions on this part, is the definition of an autoimmune disease, whether it's Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, Graves, uh, allergies, asthma, eczema, are all situations where we have elevated antibodies. Uh, Sometimes we know the antibodies like rheumatoid factor and rheumatoid arthritis or thyroid peroxidase or thyroid globulin in thyroid disease. And sometimes we don't know the antibodies, but we assume that there's too many antibodies. So the question then becomes, how do we have millions and millions of people who now have elevated antibodies all the time uh, and that's creating an autoimmune disease in them, which never ends. The question, of course, is how did this happen? And my simple answer to that is, essentially, that was the whole point of the modern vaccine program, was to create a situation of suppressed cell-mediated and accentuated humoral immunity. And so, in a funny sort of way, 
it was successful, and that's where we stand today. Well, I think the question of why we have so many antibodies is a complex one with multifactorial, you know, starting with the gut and food allergies and toxins and undigested proteins that, you know, get into the body and generate antibodies and, you know, cross-react to things. That's very complex and multifactorial. But, I mean, when it comes to getting going through the natural process of diseases, I mean, that is something that can help us long run. I mean, some people told me when they were young that they had measles parties and chicken pox parties that when a kid had it, they'd bring all the other kids over and they'd get exposed, etc. For example, I mean, at one point in your book, you said that people who have chicken pox and go through the healing process, they found in a study have a 21% decreased risk of glioma. And there is this one thing for a man with a malignant tumor in his neck. He was given a substance, was it Ephesopelis or something, and that helped him get better. So it seems that, you know, generating both arms of this immunity system can have long-term benefits just on its own. Right. In, in the book, I, I talked about exactly what you're talking about, that I, I don't mean to suggest that vaccines are the only reason that we make elevated antibodies. And I usually talk about three main reasons. One is infections and one is antigens leaking through the gut. And the third is chronic stimulation with adjuvants and vaccines. Because remember, if you just put measles virus and saline into and inject that into a person, you don't get any response. So you have to put what's called an adjuvant, which is a word meaning helper, and these are uh, essentially toxins that stimulate the antibody production of the immune system. So there is no doubt the whole practice of, of giving vaccines, the whole theory of it, is we give adjuvants, we give substances that stimulate an immune response. Now, the, the part you're talking about, and there, if people are interested in this, they can read my book, and there's also a book by a guy named Neil Miller called 400 Peer-Reviewed Studies on Vaccines, where just about every adult chronic disease, whether it's arterial sclerosis, heart disease, cancer, glioma, uh, whatever it is, you can find some peer-reviewed study showing that people who go through the process of childhood diseases with natural immunity have less of these because essentially they're, they're ways that the body uses to clear out toxins. And if you thwart that from happening, then you end up with a situation of chronic disease. That was exactly the theory of anthroposophical medicine and it was even used in therapy. I think you're referring to the work of a guy named uh, John Coley, who was a yes. surgeon who treated yes. uh, thousands of people with different forms of cancer, particularly sarcoma, by injecting bacterial toxins in them and giving them a fever for ever, continuously for a month. And the remission rate was something like 40%. Uh, even these are terminally ill, stage four cancer patients. You know, very early in my career, I was actually given a manuscript by Coley's, I think it was granddaughter, maybe his daughter, 
who had compiled thousands of cases of treatment with what are called Coley's toxins, and she gave this to me to, to look at, and I could see that fever therapy, which, you know, Hippocrates said, give me a medicine to produce a fever and I can cure any disease. And as I pointed out in the book, that, that should hang in the, in, the, in the wall of every doctor, that every time I see a person with fever, every child who's sick with a fever, what I'm really doing is trying to squire them through that so that they end up at the end of the day uh, better and more immune to getting chronic disease later in their life. Essentially, by treating children with fever, which happens naturally through you know, childhood diseases, you're essentially immunizing them against chronic disease. Unfortunately, in my opinion anyways, We've forgotten that, and that's to the detriment of our children and people's health. That's the point of the book. Well, there seems to be even a more general principle here. For example, um, I see patients that they want cold packs and this and that. And, for example, when you get some mucus, uh, I want some pills, mucumist or whatever, to get rid of the mucus. But that mucus is performing a function to help get the bacteria out of the body. So I just don't understand giving pills to stop the body's naturally he- natural healing processes. But it seems to be very prevalent in more areas than just, the, you know, childhood diseases. It's very, I mean, that's modern medicine in a nutshell. <laughs> Pill for an problem. The problem is, you know, if you ask a very simple question like, um, with these people with autoimmune disease who number in, the, in over 100 million now, if you say, okay, you're making antibodies against your joints, we call that rheumatoid arthritis, you get chronic pain and swelling in your joints, that's a result of this antibody-mediated inflammation. So, and, and of course, nobody likes people to have pain and swelling in their joints. I don't, any, no other doctor does. So, but the question then is, if you give medicines to stop their antibody reaction, like prednisone or Humira, Remicade, so here's the, here's the most important question. How many patients have been cured, meaning they end up without rheumatoid arthritis through that approach? That doesn't now, even make any sense. What about going to the cause instead of just treating symptoms? Yeah, but that, yeah, it doesn't that, make sense. that's how we do medicine. Yeah, and the answer to the question of how many people have been cured by this is actually zero. And in fact, the most disheartening part is that if you say, but isn't there something that I can do, some other way to live, some sauna I could take, something I could sweat or, or something, some way to eat or live so that I don't have this chronic autoimmune disease anymore, it, you basically get laughed at because they say, we say, that can't happen. But, of course, it can't happen if you're just treating the antibody assault because the antibodies are not really the root of the problem, as you say. Yeah, I mean, we have to look at the cause. We have to start looking at the gut and food sensitivities and what proteins are leaking through the gut and repairing the gut 
I mean, it's a multifactorial process, and I just can't comprehend just uh, masking the symptoms with a pill versus looking at the cause and trying to address it. And that's what we focus on a lot in this program is how can we focus on what's causing it. So right. we agree on this. <laughs> right. And my, I guess you could say my contribution is that one should not overlook the very direct stimulation of this process, this antibody-mediated process, through vaccines, because it's a major player in this uh, situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, you were saying, I mean, some of the things in your book is that, you know, people who have the Zoster vaccine have 2.7 times the risk of arthritis and alopecia, which is baldness, Um, you know, it just, uh, it just, I mean, and these adjuvants, these added toxins, you know, especially for a child, I mean, you know, it's such a toxic load that some children don't seem to be very well equipped to handle them. Right. I, I would like to point out that, you know, so I, I write this book and, and one could say, well, that's just Dr. Cowan, you know, he just thought of this himself. But uh, let me read you a quote. And this is from a guy named Yehuda Schoenfeld. I don't know if you or your readers know him, but I'm just going to give a brief his, his credentials. He's an Israeli guy, and he's the editor of the Israeli Medical Association Journal. He's the co-editor-in-chief of Autoimmunity Reviews and the co-editor of the Journal of Autoimmunology. And I only say that not because that means he's right, but... He obviously must know something about autoimmune disease. And he says, and I'm quoting, throughout our lifetime, the normal immune system walks a fine line between preserving normal immune reactions and developing autoimmune disease. The healthy immune system is tolerant to self-antigens. When self-tolerance is disturbed, dysregulation of the immune system follows, resulting in the emergence of autoimmune disease. Vaccination is one of the main conditions that disturbs this homeostasis in susceptible individuals resulting in autoimmune phenomena and Asia. Asia stands for autoimmune syndrome induced by adjuvant, which are these substances like aluminum and formaldehyde and fetal cells, DNA, DNA from aborted fetuses, etc., that are in these vaccines, and what he's saying is that these substances, these adjuvants, are a direct cause of the epidemic of autoimmune disease that we're seeing around the world. So wow. I, I didn't make this up, obviously. Uh, there's, uh, when people say there's no peer-reviewed studies that show this, I would only beg to differ on that. Okay, I agree with you. Wow, I mean, it's. I mean, I, but the problem is when you try, talk to people uh, about vaccines, you know, and say, "Hey, they there are some problems with them." Uh, I don't get much of a positive response. <laughs> well, uh, maybe it depends how you talk to them, I guess, or how how it's framed. But certainly, there is a lot of emotion around this. Yes. There's a lot of, of, I mean, it's a huge subject because it's basically the crown jewel of modern medicine. And 
nobody wants to mess with crown jewels and and it's increasing as you know it used to be there was when we were growing up there was 3 to 6 uh injections before the age of of 3 of uh, 3 or 6 now there's approximately 69 before the age of 18 and another wow. 60 to 70 between the ages of 18 and 65 all of which are mandated so it's a wow. huge difference now and we have to come to grips with the repercussions of of this medical intervention. A lot of money in this too, like the herpes zoster vaccine, $749 million per year. Uh, so that could be a factor as well. Uh, yeah, there's an interesting history of the economics, and you mentioned that in your uh, intro to this interview some of the interesting things around the history of of vaccines and funding and all that. I don't know if you want me to speak about that, but I can. Sure. Uh, I, lo- I very often touch on such topics. I mean, the, the basic issue here, uh, which is very uh, interesting and in, in some ways unique, was Again, I don't know if you remember this, but I was a young doctor in the mid-80s. And at that time, there was a huge issue with the toxicity of the pertussis vaccine. It was a different vaccine than we use now as the so-called cellular, not the acellular one. Uh, I would point out, though, just as another study, just a little bit um, not off the subject, but a different subject, uh, is that the DPT shot, which is, again, one of the crown jewels of the vaccine program, had never actually been studied in any kind of prospective study until very recently there was a case report published in a peer-reviewed journal by a, some authors from Denmark who looked at um, children in a village in West Africa, half of whom got the DPT shot, and the other half, because of situations that had nothing to do with the vaccine, didn't get the shot. So it was the purest case of two very equal groups. One group was fully vaccinated with DPT, and the other had no vaccines versus the DPT. And they were able to study them over the next ensuing years to find out what happened And if you would, I would quote you from the conclusion of the study, which was, quote, DPT was associated with a five-fold higher mortality than being unvaccinated. No prospective study has shown beneficial survival effects of DPT. Unfortunately, DPT is the most widely used vaccine, and the proportion who use DPT is used globally as an indicator of the performance of national vaccination programs. Wow. The important point of this study was two. One is these are, these are serious, well-known vaccine researchers in Europe, and they say, uh, they say there was no, uh, no prospective study has ever shown beneficial survival. So either they don't know their own business and there are studies or they're correct and there haven't been studies showing improved survival from DPT. And the other is that the, the, even though the, the vaccinated group had 
lesser amount of, of pertussis, that's true. So it did decrease the pertussis incident. The overall mortality rate was five times higher in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. So it didn't improve their prognosis. It just changed their disease pattern. Now, getting back to your, your question here, uh, because there was such a problem with the pertussis vaccine in the, in the mid-80s and the vaccine manufacturers were being sued uh, to the point where their business uh, prospects were not as strong, uh, apparently they went to the government, and particularly Reagan, who was president, and said, we're going to stop making vaccines unless you indemnify the vaccine manufacturers against any damages from the vaccine in perpetuity. Uh, this had never been done before. There's no product that has blanket indemnity against A, whether the product works, or B, whether the product hurts somebody. And that's considered a integral part of our whole system of, of economics and governance that we think that if you make a, you know, a, a crib that, pe- that children, you know, get their head caught in it and that people will sue the manufacturer and they will stop making those cribs because they don't want to get sued anymore. So that's a big part of how we do business. So that had never been done with a product, but apparently Reagan felt blackmailed enough, and even though he issued warnings that this may not be a good idea, they, they gave this uh, immunity against any damages from the vaccine, and they set up what's called the National Vaccine Compensation Court with very strict rules so that if somebody was injured by a vaccine, you actually sue the Justice Department and you were, they were, you were essentially going against your own government. Uh, and, you know, the cap on the award was $250,000 per event uh, lifetime, which isn't very much for a vaccine-injured child. And so since then, any vaccine that's on the CDC schedule has blanket immunity from um, any damages due to injuries from the vaccine, and the government has paid out approximately $4 billion to injured children or people from vaccine damages. And While well, they're making billions and billions and billions, there's something wrong with this picture. Right. That's a very unusual. I, I, I only want to emphasize mainly how unusual that situation is, that the government makes people buy this product, essentially, the manufacturers have no liability to even demonstrate its effectiveness or any liability if it injures somebody, and the government picks up the tab for that with very strict rules, making it very difficult. There's estimates that only 1% of the actual damages that should be compensated get compensated. So we're talking maybe in the hundreds of billions of dollars. I also understand that if you say, if a, a plaintiff says, oh, I'm having neurological problems, they're more likely to get an award than if they say, uh, my kid's got autism. Well, you have to, there's no discovery phase in the trials, which means you can't bring in 
you know, expert witnesses or even peer-reviewed studies to prove your case. So if the CDC doesn't recognize this, is, this particular issue that you're having can be a consequence of this vaccine, and they don't for autism, then you can't be compensated for autism because essentially it's not recognized that that's a consequence of this vaccine or even a potential consequence. You know, another thing that's got some similarities and probably is contributing to the health issues is uh, in 1996, the government passed a law that you can't stop placement of a cell tower for health reasons. And there are some studies showing how, you know, that this can affect health, especially kids, you know, who are growing quickly. So, I mean, it's just kind of strange. Right. It's a very strange way to, for a institution that's, ostensibly devoted to the health of the people uh, to make these kind of decisions. I, I don't mean to keep doing quotes here, but I have a very interesting quote from a guy who used to be the former commissioner of the FDA uh, on the, exactly this. The FDA essentially is, is tasked with, with you know, some of the decisions on these issues. And his name is Dr. Herbert Lay. He said, quote, the thing that bugs me is that people think the FDA is protecting them. It isn't. What the FDA is doing and what the public thinks it's doing are as different as night and day. So I think the point of that is, is we as citizens uh, and people concerned about our health and the health of our children may have to look for other ways of of figuring out how some of these issues and how we want to uh, act more responsibly and as a society on this. Let me add sure. a couple of other instances to this. The FDA scientist warned against um, uh, putting out genetically modified foods. They say, wait a minute, we need more information. This isn't good. FDA supported it and said there was no controversy. FDA knew that aspartame caused cancer because they knew the company, later bought by Monsanto, you know, were doing studies and trying to cook them a little bit. Well, apparently the FDA approved it, you know, after Donald Rumsfeld was hired to help that happen. The EPA, I mean, uh, Dr. Villanatis worked for the EPA for 25 years, and he found they always sided with the pesticide maker and never for the health of the people. And the labs that were doing the studies were all crooked. They knew it. And, I mean, it was always protecting the industry and at the risk of harming the public. It's very consistent. Right, <clears throat> right. So, I mean, the point of it is, and, and again, the point of my book is just to sort of put this in another context, you know, I, I, I don't know that we're going to get very far, and I, I must say I fall into it sometimes, but ascribing blame and evil motives and evil purposes. But, but on the other hand, we need to have a more open, honest, truthful, uh, respectful debate about, you know, the actual biology of the issue here. This isn't all about money. This isn't all about finances. This is about, you know, the health of the population and the health of the children. And, you know, there, there are, there's definitely um, lessening 
temporarily anyways of certain diseases through vaccination. So what we need to do is to balance that and the potential benefit. I don't know that there even is much, but sometimes maybe there is with the other with the other side and not just go into there's no issues with vaccines or with cell towers or aspartamine or GMO food. Uh, there are issues with all these things. That, and we just need to be just honest and clear and bring the, the, the actual facts to the table and let people decide. I mean, supposedly that's what we're all about. There's another thing in your book that I found kind of interesting, the fourth phase of water. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So uh, I I started writing about this in my previous book on the heart. Uh, It turns out that water has more than three phases. There's uh, a so-called fourth phase. There's a book written about this by an engineer. I think he's a physicist named... Gerald Pollack called the fourth phase of water. And it has numerous repercussions for uh, our health and for biology in general, uh, many of which I spelled out. But, and one, one of them is, I remember because I was in my early days as, as a doctor, I was actually an ER physician. So I had occasion to see a lot of people with stab wounds and gunshots and all that. And, of course, I, like everybody else, had learned that the human being is made of 70% water and the contents of a cell is essentially a membrane-bound bag of water. Uh, And so, of course, the question is, which phase of water is that uh, water inside the cell? And it's obviously not ice and it's not steam, so it must be water. And, And so that was the conception of biology. A basic cell is uh, water, is a membrane-bound sack of water, and has pumps in the membrane that, that distribute the electrolytes between the inside and the outside of the cell. And then I would stand with somebody who was stabbed, and to my surprise, I guess, I never saw anybody leak water out of their leg or their abdomen, or I never saw water squirting out of anybody's wound. And I, even at that time, I asked myself, so where's the water here? Uh, it was only later that I found out that all the water in, inside any cell, whether it's a human cell or any living being, is actually in a gel phase. And this is very important because the gel phase distributes the electrolyte, electrolytes in and out of the cell much more efficiently than these pumps that are hypothesized and postulated. And it also made sense of how we get sick. And that's an intimate part of childhood disease is that there's a very specific sequence of events, which is, so first of all, if you can picture a healthy cell is a very, uh, it's, a, it's like crystalline water, this gel phase of water, which is like a perfect crystal, which then acts as a perfect receptor for all kinds of influences, both physical and maybe even metaphysical. And as long as that perfect gel exists, health is good and life is good. 
Now, unfortunately, if something comes along and interferes with the formation of this gel, so you, you get a distorted gel, that's an intolerable situation for the human being, and their essentially perceptual ability is distorted. It's like a radio that's out of tune. So the body comes along, and it uses its cell-mediated immune system to first heat up the gel, which is why the first thing that happens when we get sick is we get a fever, and that liquefies the gel and allows it to run, and that essentially excretes the toxins through the running of the, essentially the loosening or the dissolving of the gel that facilitates the excretion of the toxins out of the cell. Uh, so that's the next phase, which is the development of mucus, which is then able to be excreted from the body. And then you can reconstitute this more perfect gel. So you can see the, essentially the essence of childhood illness through the eyes or through the lens of this perfect gel toxin in the gel, whether it's aspartamine or, uh, you know, GMO food or uh, adjuvants from vaccine or any other influence from the gut or whatever, they get dissolved in the gel. The gel doesn't, the body doesn't want that. It heats up the area, lets the gel run, the toxins are excreted, and then you can reconstitute a more perfect health. That's the fundamental reason why Fevers are the healers, and so that's a fundamental part of understanding childhood disease. Interesting. You also made a comment that you poke holes in a cell wall and it won't leak. Right. This has been shown for, you know, basically decades, if not centuries. Uh, And that's obvious. It's like jello. You know, the cell, the inside of a cell uh, is the same consistency essentially as jello. It's sort of made in the same way. Jello is, uh, you basically have proteins which act as the sort of nidus upon which this gel water is formed. And what you do is you put proteins, you add an energy source, which in the case of jello is heat, and then you cool it and it forms a gel. And you can poke, you know, 10, 20 holes in jello and nothing leaks out. You can do the same with a cell. You can poke 10, 20 holes in a cell. Nothing leaks out. The formation is the same. There's proteins inside the cell. They form the essentially endoskeleton of the cell upon which the gel is formed. We don't use heat. We use a molecule called ATP which is not the energy molecule that it's sometimes referred to, but it unfolds the protein so allows them to interact with the water to form this gel. And that's how the gel inside the cell is formed. And so it's very similar, and it also tells you that there is this fourth phase because otherwise, what phase is jello? It's not ice, it's not water, and it's not steam. Well, we have like about three and a half minutes left, so uh, would you like to summarize your main points and uh, tell people how to get a hold of you? Again, his book is called Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Diseases, and it's coming out soon, very soon. It's um, coming out soon. Uh, The summary is only that we should be very careful with 
suppressing childhood disease and i mean any acute illness in the, in in all but that if there's one thing to remember is uh like hippocrates said give me a fee- a medicine to produce a fever and i can cure any disease fever is the healer and until conventional medicine understands that uh we're in for troubles as far as uh reaching me um you know the book will be on amazon i have a bunch of websites. One is fourfoldhealing.com. That's F-O-U-R-F-O-L-D-H-E-A-L-I-N-G. That's the practice website. We have another website called humanheartcosmicheart.com. That's uh, got to do with all things related to the heart and heart disease. And I even have a, ve- uh, a website where we sell vegetable powders that we um uh, Produce called drcowensgarden.com. All one word spelled out. Okay. Well, this is all very interesting because I know that there's a lot of people that argue that we need to vaccinate a certain uh, percentage of the people so that we have of some protection. But this is something we need to think about, uh, you know, while we're doing this, especially as they keep trying to give these things to us as adults. So I advise you to go do your own research, check with your clinician, and so find information so you can help yourself and you can help others and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.